haven't heard or read the term critical minerals recently, you might have been actively avoiding the news or maybe just distracted because the term is cropping up seemingly everywhere, from the financial pages to discussions on jobs and national security. Today, we'll try to clarify what is at stake and why now, particularly focusing on two clear issues of Australian jobs, depending on whether we process the minerals here, and why these strategic metals are arguably crucial to our sovereign capability, our security. I'm happy to say I'm joined by two people this morning who are thinking hard about this. Paul Farrow, the recently appointed head of the Australian Workers' Union, the AWU, and Dr Alan Dupont, a long-respected military and geostrategic analyst. He wrote an excellent piece on this for The Australian last month. Welcome, Paul and Alan. Thanks, Geraldine. Nice to be with you. Thanks, Geraldine. First to you, Alan, the obvious question. We hear the term a lot. Honestly, I think that people have just laid it aside. They don't understand what it means. Could you explain, please, what critical minerals are and what they're used for? And are they the same thing, by the way, as rare earths? They're referred to collectively as critical minerals because they're so crucial for economic development and the running of a modern economy. People would have heard of lithium, for example. Um, That's critical now to these new batteries that we're developing for renewable energy sector for electric vehicles. They range from things like lithium and some quite obscure uh, critical minerals that probably most people have never heard of but are vitally important, such as neodymium and praseodymium. These are all lovely Greek words. They are essentially producing these very powerful magnets that, for example, drive wind turbines. They make uh, F-35 fighters work. Uh, And so they're absolutely crucial not only for modern economies, but also for the military. Now, within the critical minerals grouping, there is a subgroup called rare earths, and there's only 17 of them. And despite their name, they're actually not rare in the sense that they're widely distributed around the world, but they're rare in the sense that they have to be processed to be usable. And that takes a lot of money and a lot of time. And only a few countries are doing this. And unless you process these rare earths, then you can't actually get value added to them. And the question for Australia, of course, is should we be doing processing of these rare earths and critical minerals as well as just digging them out of the ground as we have done historically? And that's one of the the crucial issues that we have to decide upon in Australia. But it's not just a discussion about whether we're a quarry, as far as I can understand. What are your concerns vis-a-vis the government's strategy for critical minerals, which was released a month back and I think sort of overlooked because you think there is more at stake? I'll give the government credit. The critical mineral strategy is good as far as it's written, but the problem is it's coming out of the um, resources minister's office and really my argument would be we have to take a much more strategic approach to critical minerals. It's not just like iron ore, which is obviously important commercially. It's not just about digging minerals out and processing. It's about having a broad whole of government strategy that factors in the geopolitics, national security, the employment jobs economy around the critical minerals ecosystem we're trying to develop. In other words, it's an issue that goes beyond one particular department or portfolio that has to be really led by the Prime Minister, and I would argue it should be in the National Security Committee of Cabinet. Okay, and we're going to come back to that. Now, Paul, speaking from the AWU's perspective, why do we need to treat these minerals differently from all the other minerals we dig up in this country? 
Look, I think you've really got to go to the heart of why they're called critical minerals in the first place. And that's because they're critical and irreplaceable to key industries, especially the new green industries like battery manufacturing, solar panels, wind turbines, as Alan's just spoken on. And also the supply chain is at risk due to limited geographical distribution. Because it's going to China? 96% of Australia's lithium is going to China. Um, And, you know, the figures are just staggering when you start to look. We are the biggest exporter, and the estimate, I think, this year is we're going to go from exports worth $5.2 billion to $18.6 billion, and that's just going to grow. This is huge amounts of money involved. Now, are there jobs there? That's the question, Paul. If things change and we, we do develop a broader strategy... There is definitely jobs if we get policy right. I mean, no doubt there's jobs that come from digging this up and shipping it off. But I'd say that my members in the industry and my potential members that could be employed in the industry are far smarter than being able to operate equipment that just dig things up. You know, we we need to see downstream operations jobs. And I think that goes to what Alan was saying before as well around the security issue. You know, like if we're processing these products, we're creating more jobs more wealth for workers, and then having some policy in place to make sure that we're securing these critical minerals that we're not just digging up, we're also processing and making sure that we're setting them aside for the technologies that we're going to require. So, Alan, could you give us a pricey, as you see it, of the government's strategy? Uh, What are the key points that we need to understand? I guess the key points are, one, that we have a lot of critical minerals in Australia under the ground. Two, we are digging a lot of them up. We're not really processing them in Australia at the moment. There's only one Australian company that processes and it does that overseas, right? Although that's probably going to change in the next few years. It talks about how we're going to fund this and it talks about the facilities the government has set up to seed fund and to help the developing critical minerals industry in Australia. My problem with that is it's too fractured and it's too risk averse and there's not enough money there to drive the development of the industry in the way that we would like in Australia. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars. And the other point I'd make just here that is touched on in the in the strategy, but probably could be fleshed out a bit more, is that Most other countries now around the world are heavily subsidising their clean energy sector and, of course, critical minerals are crucial to driving that. And so they're effectively subsidising all the critical minerals that we're interested in. And the risk for us is that we lose business to other countries, including some of our friends and allies. So if we want to be a clean energy superpower, as the government sort of says it does, we then have to confront the issue that this is not just a commercial decision, it's a strategic decision, and we are probably going to have to follow the rest of the world in actually developing incentives for our sector that may include subsidies as well. And yeah. the market purists don't like that. But to me, this is not a market question, it's a strategic question. You're saying that if we are going to compete, we need to have tax incentives, differentiated royalties, targeted subsidies, export assistance packages that level the playing field. And the AWU also, in fact, your predecessor, Paul, Daniel Walton, wanted a tax 
on exported critical minerals in order to suggest to the multinationals that they pause and think whether it would be better to do things here. Now, Paul, there's clearly a need for huge capital coming. There was quite an interesting piece during the week from Dave Clark, who uh, works at a consultancy, I assume it is GHD, and he's just talking about the huge amounts of capital that he claims is sort of incipient in Australia, but it keeps getting held up by all sorts of state government regulations and community opposition. Now, I wonder if you've looked into this. Has the AWU looked closely into this? I would say it's music to our ears listening to to Alan speak just then. You know, I think that we are miscategorising, you know, this as a a minerals boom like we did with the mining boom. I think Alan Alan just touched on it then. We don't seem to learn the lessons uh, from the past. You know, we talked about during the mining boom, you know, royalties and people run to the hills and there's big scare campaigns run and we, we sort of missed some opportunities in that. And draw the recent reference to gas where we've been talking about for the last eight or nine years gas reservation of what could happen you know, to our gas prices once we start liquefying it and shipping it off overseas and we've seen what that's actually done to the market currently. And here we are now with, with a debate on critical minerals. It's important that that is not just taken as another mining boom or minerals boom. You know, we need to see, as we we're calling for with the mining boom, those downstream operations, not just for the jobs, um, not just for the creation of wealth. We're talking about, you know, the minerals in, in our ground and people profiting from that as a result of it, the people in this country. But that's going to take a big policy shift and people looking at it from a different angle. Well, in fact, Alan DuPont, you suggest the Canadians do offer a very different model. Well, they certainly do now because they basically just told China to to divest from their critical minerals value chain, right? This is only uh, late last year. And the reason is that if you allow any one country to develop a near monopoly over something that's crucial to your economic development and your your security, you're asking for trouble because if something goes wrong there and the supply of critical minerals is cut off for some reason, as we've seen recently in the past, and COVID, for example, like that, or a country decides to just do it for geopolitical reasons, as China has done previously, then you're in big trouble. So Canada has made the decision on national security grounds that they will ask China to get out of their critical minerals value chains, and I think we should do the same here. But they're also yeah, is- investing billions of dollars in, uh, I'm reading from this man, Dave Clark's report, in buying equity in critical minerals mines and infrastructure, and European governments, he says, are doing the same thing. Now, I mean, this is a very interesting set of developments. That's sort of real resource nationalism coming back. Yes, it's a very good point, uh, Jeremy. So if we are going to sort of diversify and de-risk our critical minerals industry by asking China to get out of the sector, we have to accept that they've put a lot of money in. So who's going to replace that? And my argument is that it has to be replaced by investment from trusted sources, that is Australian sources or from allies who also want to have an alternative to China. And in fact, most of the world does. So there would be plenty of international investment opportunities for our sector if the government sends the right signals that we are open for business and we are going to accept investment and we're going to incentivise investment in critical minerals. If we don't do that and then we ask China to leave, then of course, a lot of our junior miners, the small miners who are the main players here, are going to collapse. So you don't mind if you're called protectionist? (laughs) 
I wouldn't use the term protectionist, right? We talk a lot about sovereign capabilities, which means these are the things we need to do and make in Australia. This is one of them. I don't see that as protectionism. And even if you do see it as protectionism, if the rest of the world's doing it and we're not, we are going to suffer. So if that is the way the world's going, we're just going to have to be realistic about it and to some degree emulate what's happening elsewhere. Let me just give Paul the last word about uh, where you'd like to see activity and discussion headed next, Paul. I'd finish by saying like, you can't blame countries running around securing as much of these critical minerals as possible. The question has got to be asked, why aren't we doing the same? Why are we still happy just to dig it off and ship it to anyone that wants them when we recognise that countries like China are doing everything they can to secure, knowing that these things are going to be crucial in the not-too-distant future, uh, we need to be doing the same. Like I said before, without Australia's resources, the world's not going to reach net zero. Look, gentlemen, thank you very much. I think a lot of us just need to understand more anyway. Alan Dupont and Paul Farrow, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be on. And Paul is the new head of the Australian Workers' Union, Alan DuPont, the CEO of the Cognoscenti Group and non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute. And a couple of people have come through and said, where are the superannuation funds? This is surely the sort of long-term patient capital would be perfectly employed. We'll see. Well, coming up in a moment, the July edition of The Peak. <laughs> 